Welcome back to Knox Pride Podcast. I'm joined with Matt, as always. Hello, James. How's your week been, Matt? It's been incredibly busy. The past two weeks have been incredibly busy. Mine have been the total opposite. (laughs) Just kidding. I've been pretty busy, too. This weather here in East Tennessee... Has been just all over the place, huh? Yeah, I don't like it. I, I'm i a big fan of not being cold. Um, I hate the snow. I hate being cold. I would rather be in five-inch inseam shorts and a nice little shirt. But I'm no. also, I'm ready for 95-degree weather. Yeah. I cannot stand being cold. I want to be in the sun, in the water, with a wine cooler in my hands. Oh, yeah, you were talking about the other day. You want to have a wine cooler summer? Yeah, somebody asked what the first alcohol I ever got drunk on was, and it was Bartles and James wine coolers, which I don't think exists anymore, but it made me come to the conclusion that I need to spend this entire summer just, like, slightly buzzed on wine coolers. I think before I was the age to drink, it was um, Mad Dog, because you could literally buy it at a gas station. And then my mother used to drink Seagram's. Mm, that still exists. You can still buy Seagram's. And it was like this strawberry daiquiri one. Ugh. And it was so good. My dad was a beer drinker. So at, back then I could not stand the taste of beer. But now I'm like, beer me, bro. Yeah. Yeah. I used to drink beer a lot when I was younger, but I'm not a fan anymore. Now, I don't really, you know, honestly care to really drink much anymore. I mean, I like the occasional one. But like, beer is just that. That was my my twenty twenty three resolution was to stop drinking beers, and it's worked for the most part. Oh, my twenty twenty three resolution was to not ever make any more resolutions. <laughs> How did that go for you? Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but Matt, something really exciting has happened Tell to me. Knox Pride Podcast. We have gotten our first offer for an ad. I'm so excited. I know. We're going to record it after this, and it'll be somewhere in this episode. And we also have direct listener support, and the link for that will be in the show notes. So if you guys can spare some funds for us, everything that we receive goes right back into the podcast. And if you can't monetarily support us, we would love for you to rate and review wherever you're listening. It'll help us a lot. Well, I think it's time we get into the episode, Matt. A little bit, yeah. So we spent this week studying bull culture and we watched Paris is Burning. And so we're going to have a little episode, just a little gay history episode. A little harsh um, just a little, Just a little slice of gay life for you guys this week. Uh, so we're going to talk about bull culture, the history of it. We're going to do a little review on Paris is Burning. And then we're going to tell you where bull culture is today. The ballroom scene is an African-American and Latina underground LGBTQ plus subculture that originated in New York City. Although there were existing pageants in the city, they were mostly judged by white folks and therefore super racially biased. So the black and Latina drag queens started to organize their own pageants. They took things into their own hands. The initial establishment of ballroom mimicked these pageants, which the inclusion of gay men and trans women would transfer the ball stream into what we know it as today. Most balls took place in the middle of the night in old theaters or old churches, and attendees would walk in one or more of a number of categories to win trophies and cash. While some people competed solo, 
Participants would most likely be a part of what they called a house. A house was an extended chosen family. It consisted of a mother and a father who had ballroom experience, and they would support and provide guidance to their children. And some of the most notable ballroom houses would be the Royal House of La Beja, founded by Crystal La Beja, which she was one of the co-founders of the ballroom culture. There was also the House of Balenciaga. The House of Dupree. House of Ladoja. The House of Ninja, founded by Willy Ninja. And the House of Extravaganza, founded by Hector Extravaganza. And dozens more. Way too many to list. To compete against each other, different houses would walk a vast amount of categories at any given ball and would dress accordingly to the guidelines of the category they're competing in. Balls ranged in scale from mini balls, which were smaller with a smaller selection of categories and fewer people walking. They would have a runtime of one to two hours. And then you would have your mainstream balls, which would consist of most, if not all, categories, a significant amount of participants in each category, and lasting anywhere from four to eight hours. Categories are split into demographics. Flyers will always tell contestants how each category will be divided. The demographics would be... You would have Fem Queen, which was your trans women. You would also have Butch Queens. That was the gay men. Then you had your trans men. You had your drags, gay men and drag. You had your women, your cisgender women. You had a male figure. That was a collection of butch queens and trans men. You had your female figure, which would be the collection of femme queens, drags, and women. And then you would have open to all, and that would be a collection of all demographics. Some of the categories would include voguing, which would... Use the elements of your hands, catwalk, duck walk, floor performances, spins, dips, flips, the whole tricks. With voguing, you would have your virgin vogue, which would be people who have not been voguing for more than a year. You would have your beginner's vogue, which would be people performing for more than a year, but less than two years. And then you had your hand performances, which were judged on your element of the hands using to tell a story. You also had femme queen realness. This was judged on the participants' ability to blend in with cis gender women. Uh, you also would have butch queen realness. That was judged on the participants' ability to blend in with male heterosexuals. Uh, the category of butch queen realness is further divided into some subcategories. Uh, we had schoolboy. That was people who would have the look and the demeanor of a college attendee. There were thugs. Those were people, men who had the look and demeanor of the hyper-masculine black men. Then there was pretty boy. Uh, those were the folks who had the look and demeanor of a metrosexual. Then we also had executive. Uh, those people had the look and demeanor of corporate America. And then one of my favorite categories, which was runway, which would be your ability to walk like a supermodel. And then the runway was divided into two different categories. You had your European, which was the more feminine aspect of runway. And then you had your all-American, which was the more masculine aspect of it. They also had a face category, and this is just what it sounded like. It was based on this, the symmetry of your face, your teeth, everything, beauty, glamour in the face, face to the gods. <laughs> and then you had your body category, which would be the shape and tone of the body. And the body category had two variants, which was women's body, femme queen body. 
judged on the curvilicious shape and the structure of a black woman's body. And you had the butch queen body, which was more of the muscular definition and symmetry, um, more of like a homage to bodybuilding. And then finally, they also had the legendary iconic category, which were for um, it's probably really what people went to see was the legends and the icons. Now, a legendary performer was somebody who had been performing like seven to 10 years. And then iconic was anybody who had been just like ruling the, the ball scene for 10 or more years. Yeah. Like that was your goal is like, you wanted to get to legendary, get to iconic. Like you were mastering what you were doing for that long. That's what you want to be. Do you think that you would have made it to legendary or iconic status? I think maybe, maybe legendary. Like, I don't know if I'm sure you've noticed, but when I walk, I have like a, a natural like little swoosh to my <laughs> to my walks. So I, I feel like I could like like what category would you be uh, competing oh, in? Oh, runway! Come oh, on, would oh, you? I, I would I would I would actually murder runway, and I can <laughs> I can be Lisa Evangelista. I can be on that model. I can be on that model runway walk. I think I would be in Butch Butch Queen realness, and I would probably be competing in the schoolboy category because I'm very young looking and very fashionable. Now, I remember you doing, whenever you would host some events, you would actually do some performances as well. And you would have like this little, you would have like a little drag king moment. And I loved it. I loved you coming out there with your little painted on mustache. Even though you have a beard, you would <laughs> you would shave and then you would still paint on a mustache. And I loved My it. My natural facial hair doesn't look the way that I want it to. So I just draw it on. Might as well. Well, I think... We should take a little break, listen to a little ad, and then we should come back and we should talk about the iconic documentary by Jenny Livingston, Paris is Burning. Okay, let's get into Paris is Burning, directed by Jenny Livingston. I'm going to start out with some numbers because I know that some of our listeners enjoy this sort of thing. So the budget for Paris is Burning was only $500,000. It made at the box office almost $3.8 million. Which I found that so insane that almost six times the amount is what it made in the box office. Well, but it was also 1991. People didn't have a lot of other things going on. Well, you are right. You are right. (laughs) And the New York City premiere coincidentally was 32 years ago to the day that we're recording this episode. Shut up. I know. I just found that out. Jenny Livingston moved to New York after graduating from Yale in the mid-80s, shortly after she was exposed to the ball scene and spent the next six years making the film Paris is Burning. She interviewed key figures in the ball world. Many of them would contribute monologues that would shed light upon gender roles, gay culture, and the ball subculture, as well as their own life stories. The film also explores how its subjects deals with Issues such as AIDS, racism, poverty, violence, and homophobia. So now that we've basically read you the Wikipedia description of the movie, let's get into how we felt about it. Matt, had you seen Paris is Burning before? I watched it once before, but it was maybe 10, 15 years ago, as I didn't really remember it. Um, But watching it again, there was some stuff that... I remembered 
obviously the opening scene, we get to see Pepper LaBeja. And I was fascinated. Icon. <laughs> Pepper LaBeja is an icon. I, I loved Pepper. Honestly, really seeing that 1990s like filming of New York City is, it was crazy to look at because... Obviously, technology back then wasn't the best, but no, but the fashion was it amazing. So good, like I, I wish. As could. somebody in the vintage fashion industry, I was just like in heaven because the '90s is like that's my sweet spot right there. Yeah. I love all of that fashion. I had seen it a few times, but it had been a couple years. I, the first thing that I forgot and remembered once we watched the film was how short it is it's really only about an hour long isn't it yeah it was a little over an hour if i had done my job a little bit better i would have looked at the actual runtime but i did not so but (laughs) it's around an hour so when the film starts at most of the film really is just an introduction to this menagerie of these incredible real life characters um you already mentioned pepper labasia um there was dorian corey venus extravaganza angie extravaganza willie ninja that's just like a few of the incredible personalities in this movie and they really just like get deep into a little bit of the history of of the ball scene and uh voguing and what voguing is it's really Although some of the things that they talk about are really deep and sad, they talk a lot about the plight of AIDS in their community. They talk a lot about um, sex work. Um, Angie Extravaganza talks quite a bit about how she supports herself as a sex worker. But even though the subject is kind of heavy, it's a a very happy movie, I feel like. You know, like, I guess that sort of speaks to what Jenny Livingston saw and why she made the movie in the first place, because amongst all of these obstacles that this group of people have, they still were happy and they still loved each other and they still rose above all of the, all of the things in their way fighting against them. Right. Cause I feel like, yeah, obviously there was the AIDS uh, epidemic going on and then racism, homophobia, stuff like that. They didn't want to focus on, just the negative things for this documentary. You know, it was about the ball culture and voguing. So I like that it wasn't solely about the negativities that they were experiencing in their life. It was about how ball culture, you know, really made them a family because that's really what it was. It was just a bunch of individuals coming together just to be a family. And Jenny Livingston spent six years uh, filming with this group of people and it's it it's not really clear in the movie. I don't think that you can really tell in the movie that the footage is footage from six years time. But they do come back at the uh, end of the movie and it's clearly like a couple years later and they do a little bit of a wrap up. Um, that's when we find out, sadly, that Angie Extravaganza was murdered by one of her one of her clients. As I said, she was a sex worker <clears throat> and they kind of like, you know, give you the like where everybody is now. Jenny Livingston, I don't, I didn't know what she looked like until we, you and I sat down and watched a Joan Rivers episode with the cast of Paris is Burning. And she's like 
literally like a little church mouse. She looks like um, Doug Funny's sister, <laughs> Judy Funny. Um, and I can't imagine what it was like seeing all these big personalities in New York and then seeing this tiny little like curly haired white girl. Right. <laughs> like hanging out with them. But I think honestly, like not knowing, not remembering maybe that Angie passes away in the movie. Yeah, you were you were kind of like shook by that. I was cuz like I wasn't expecting it cuz I remember you telling me like, "Oh, just get ready for like the not not surprise death, but like not really expecting, I guess, surprise death, but like it it really did shake me cuz I was not expecting that cuz I loved her. She was such a like a what looked like a cool person and like, you know, really cool to hang out with and then she Sadly. Gets murdered. Yeah. Um, and then there was also more murder involved um, that nobody found out until after the fact. I don't. Did you know about this beforehand? Uh, I did not. <clears throat> so, so at some point in the mid 90s, Dorian Corey, um, who was one of the main focuses of this film, passed away. And as they were cleaning out her apartment, in her closet, they found the mummified body of one of her ex-partners. I was so shocked when you said that because I, I've told you I've watched Pose before. And spoiler alert, that happens in the show yeah, too. Yeah, I didn't know that. I've never seen Pose, so I didn't know that was... I knew that they had taken a lot of their storyline yeah. from Paris is Burning and from this group of particular people but i did not know that that was in it yeah they they kind of tied in a lot of stuff from paris is burning into you know pose which if you if you guys have not seen pose before it's about the ballroom culture it's about voguing and it's about you know them becoming a family so they tied it in like really close to each other um but yeah that part threw me through a loop I was not expecting you to say that. I need to go. I know it's like, um, I mean, there, there are scenes in the movie where they're filming and the closet where they found that body is in, in the background. So they were unknowingly filming while there was a dead body in the closet of Dorian's apartment. I, I couldn't imagine being the person to find that. I, I would have lost. I can't imagine. I, I cannot imagine. I haven't. I watched the first season of Pose and it was really good and it was incredible. Billy Porter is amazing. Yes. MJ Rodriguez is amazing. Yes. The whole cast. But I think that the reason that I didn't return to it for season two was because I guess I knew that it was getting deeper into the AIDS crisis and I just wasn't mentally prepared to watch right. anything about that at the time. And then I just never returned to it. But I definitely need to go back and see it because I know it is an incredible show for sure. It was. Like, I remember streaming all of what I could. I think at the time it was on Netflix. I can't remember if it is still now or not. But I remember literally sitting there watching the first three seasons or four seasons, like, back to back to back because I could not stop watching it. Which kind of reminds me, brings me back to Paris is Burning. There was... We watched a movie and we were supposed to take notes on the movie. And I literally wrote down one thing, <laughs> <laughs> one thing from the movie. And it was a quote. Um, who said it? I think it was um, Dorian Corey or it might have been Pepper. But she said, they said, 
a house is just a gay street gang. I love that. And that <laughs> that one note was in my phone, and I I loved it. That was like one of my favorite quotes from the entire movie. That's amazing. So it Paris's burning went on to win several awards. Um, it had a pretty good reception, honestly. Um, it won the IDA award. It won the LAFCA Award for Best Documentary uh, at the San Francisco International Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. Uh, It won Best Documentary uh, at the Sundance Film Festival in 1991. It won the Grand Jury Prize Documentary. So it kind of was a hit. And even though it was, it didn't really bring... It brought the ball culture to light. And then... It's sort of I would say almost it like it almost kind of fizzled a little bit. It did. It did. There are a lot of things from this culture that I was aware of before I was aware of the culture, if that makes sense. Right. A lot of slang, a lot of dance moves, right. A lot of fashion that I enjoyed came from this culture, but I wasn't aware of where it came from until mm-hmm. much later. Uh I think we should talk a little bit about ball culture. After Paris is burning and where it is now, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we'll discuss current ball culture. Hey, James, what's wrong? Everything, Matt. The government won't stay out of my business. I'm of a certain age and I don't have any health insurance. The economy is constantly stressing me out. And I'm still mad that NBC canceled Smash. I wish there was somewhere that I could just dump all these emotions and get cathartic. Did somebody say cathartic? I know of a place where you can dump all those emotions. Please join us every first Saturday of the month for Braddy's Cathartic Karaoke at Knox Pride, where there's only one rule, to feel something. So my first exposure to the ball culture, probably like everyone else, was RuPaul's Drag Race. Right. I feel like he alluded a lot to the ball culture and he used a lot of the ball culture in his show before he actually started telling everybody where it came from. Yeah. But it is definitely where I first heard a lot of the verbiage used and things like that. And so... That's that was probably the next big step in media after Paris is Burning. Right. There was a lot of in the 90s. There was a lot of these people appear, appearing on like Donahue and Ricky Lake and things like that. Mm-hmm. But and RuPaul himself had his own talk show. But right. I don't think that it really like hit mainstream really until then. Yeah. Until RuPaul's Drag Race. Right. Um, and since then we've had all kinds of shows. We've had legendary, we've had pose that we talked about. Right. They just started doing one in Canada. What is that one called? So that one was called, um, the CBX Canadian ballroom extravaganza did not know about this until we were looking more into it. And it sounds really cool because it was a challenge of teams consisting of one ballroom performer and one emerging filmmaker, and they would create short films and like highlighting performances 
of each five ballroom categories. And that sounds like low-key, no shade, honestly, a little bit more entertaining than some of the <laughs> RuPaul yeah, Drag Race definitely, shows. We should definitely try to uh, yeah. figure out how to watch that. I don't know how we can watch the Canadian Broadcast Corp- uh, Corporation, but I'm definitely going to figure out how to do so. But I definitely know that my first experience was Drag Race. I was 16 when that show came out. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like... 30 when that show came, came out? out in 2009 in 2000 I was 29 when that show came out so I was 16 and I remember watching it like in my bedroom and I was like this is gay but I love it <laughs> this it, is it, gay <laughs> and I fell in love with it because as a young queer myself I was like oh my god this is like my people um but I loved it and obviously now here we are 14 15 years later and RuPaul is in almost every country of this world. Yeah, taken over. But I feel like it definitely has blown up since then. Like 2009, like the first maybe like five or six years, it was kind of like slow, steady. But yeah. then like it just took off and it's everywhere now. And the the folks in this movie, a lot of them are still working in the industry Benny Ninja from the House of Ninja was all over America's Next Top Model. I think it, you know, probably took too long for, I mean, obviously, yes, like the ball and the voguing culture to be mainstream, but like really to have like the LGBT like actor or like character on shows. So I feel like it just, that kind of helped really lead off on a lot of things now that we see. For yeah. our community and on I mean, in, in general, it was just that there wasn't any queer representation in media. Absolutely none. So that was sort of like, that was sort of like the the draw of Paris is Burning is that like, it was so unusual to see queer culture represented in a yeah. film. Anyway, I, let alone like a subculture like this, yeah. you know, it really is a beautiful movie. Because I only remember like. What was his name? Was it Danny that was on MTV's uh, Real World? Oh, yeah. Was that like the first gay person that you ever saw on, that was on mainstream TV? Literally, yeah. Oh, who was the first gay person I saw on mainstream TV? I think that it was Roseanne. Okay. There was like a plot line where Roseanne's, I believe Roseanne's mom was a lesbian for a minute. I think. Yeah, I think I remember that. And so was was but it Jackie? also like um Sam, well in the end Jackie was yeah. a lesbian, but they they also don't in the Roseanne universe now that it's continued with the Connors. Yeah. They've sort of like taken that part out. So also like Sandra Bernhardt was on Roseanne and I remember her making out with maybe like Claudia Shifford or someone like that on the show and it was like a big deal but I'm pretty sure Roseanne was like the first time I saw queer representation on TV and what just came in my mind because I know you like Sabrina the Teenage Witch do you remember when RuPaul was on there as like it was judge or I do something? remember that <laughs> I think that that it was it was either um Danny from real world that I've seen or it was RuPaul on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. On Sabrina Witch. the Teenage Witch. I also, uh, I, I remember when RuPaul had a television show. I don't remember watching it. I may have watched it and I just don't remember. But I was probably in my early, 
early teens or maybe preteens when I first started seeing queer representation on television, but it was few and far between. And I also didn't really know a lot about being queer in general back then. So there's that too. Growing up in a small town. Yeah, very small town. (laughs) Hey, James, can you hand me that microphone cord on the bottom shelf? I sure can. Oh, no. I ripped a huge hole in my pants. Well, that's embarrassing. What am I going to do, Matt? I wish there was somewhere I could find reasonably priced work clothes in a pinch. Haven't you heard of the Knox Pride Thriftique? I haven't. What's that? The Knox Pride Thriftique offers unique vintage finds and your everyday clothing and accessory needs. Plus, every dollar spent helps fund programs at Knox Pride. That sounds pretty great, Matt. What are their hours? The Knox Pride Thriftique is open Monday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Stop in or visit knoxpride.com for more information. Hey, Matt! Hey, James! You want to hit him with the calendar? Oh, yeah. Pew, 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 pew! On the 16th of March, we have Social Dance for Everyone at 6.30 p.m. And on March the 17th, we have Knox Pride Community Resource Fair at 11 a.m. And then at 7 p.m., we have the Knox Pride Bingo Trivia Night at Southcrest. On the 18th of March, we've got Knox Pride Saturday Morning Yoga at 9 a.m. And at 2 p.m., we have KQYA Young Adult Meetup. On March the 19th, we have the Severe... Appalachian Outreach Flash Mob Dance Basics Part 1 at 1 p.m. Ooh, that was a mouthful. On the 20th of March, we've got the Knox Pride Thriftique Fillabag event at 5 p.m. And then on March the 21st, we have Knox Pride TTRPG One Shot with Story at 5 p.m. On the 22nd of March, we have the YWCA Domestic Violence Support Group at 2 p.m., as well as the Knox Pride and South Press Presents Karaoke and Open Stage Drag Night. That starts at 6 p.m. at South Press. On March the 25th, we have the Knox Pride Volunteer Day starting at 10 a.m., and then at 1 p.m., we have the Knox Pride Trans and Non-Binary Support Group. You got real country on that one. A little bit. On the 27th of March, we've got the Queer Cinema Club. At 7 p.m., hosted by yours truly, where I'll be showing to Wong Fu. On March the 29th, we have the YWCA Domestic Violence Support Group at 2 p.m. And then at 6 p.m. at South Press, we have the Knox Pride and South Press Presents Karaoke and Open Stage Drag Night. On the 30th of March, we've got Knoxville's LGBTQIA Plus Disabled Resource Networking Event at 10 a.m. And that evening at 6 p.m., my mom is going to be teaching the Knox Pride Life Skills class on first-time home buying. And on March the 31st, we have the Knox Pride Volunteer Meetup with pizza and game night at 6 p.m. For details on these events and much more, please visit KnoxPride.com. Pew, 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 pew. Well, that was a fun episode, Matt. It was. I really enjoyed learning more about ball culture. Diving like, deeper into the balls. Yeah. <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was really entertaining and it was somewhat educational. 
Do we have anything else we want to share with our audience before we go? Yes. So we obviously pre-recorded the calendar that we make for every episode, but there was actually a new event that we want to tell you guys about. Um, It is the No Hate Campaign. They are coming to Knoxville. They are going to be here on March the 23rd from 6 to 8 p.m., and they're going to be at the Knox Pride Center. Um, So if you'd like to join, need more information, or need some any questions, uh, you can visit, visit Knox Pride on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, Um, But we cannot wait to have the No Hate Campaign people here in Knoxville. I am very excited about that. I guess it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind you that we have unlocked direct listener support if you want to throw a little fundage our way. Uh, And also, please don't forget to rate and review wherever you're listening to, especially on Apple Podcast. Well, until next time. We see you, we hear you, and and we we love love you. Knox Pride Podcast is produced by J.D. Davis, Matt Navarro-Camp, and James Owens with recording and engineering by J.D. Davis. Knox Pride Podcast is a community-driven effort, and we need your help. Please email us at podcast at knoxpride.com with any questions, ideas for guests, or suggestions on content. And don't forget to follow us at Knox Pride Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. Knox Pride Podcast is brought to you by Knox Pride Network with funding from the United Way. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.